Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. And welcome back to another stabby snippet here on Three Spooked Girls. It is I, one of your co-hosts, Jessica. And as always, I am joined by my favorite ghoul friend, Tara. Hey, Spooksters. And today, I'm going to be telling you the story of Douglas slash Donna Perry. It's about some murders that happened in Washington. You ready? I am. And we're going to travel back in time because... It took a long time for this to happen. Okay. So in 1990, between the months of February and May, three women were killed with a low caliber weapon in Spokane, Washington. All three women were sex workers and all three of them, they worked in the same general area of Spokane. On September 22nd, 1990, Yolanda Sapp went to work and obviously she was a sex worker and she was going to meet with clients. At that time, she was 26 years old and was described to be very beautiful. And when you see a picture of her, like I just have to say her lips are like the most beautiful lips I've ever seen in my entire life. I think that lipstick companies look for women like her. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, oh, she's so pretty. Like I said, she was described to be very beautiful and she was actually extremely popular with the local Johns, like her clients. On that night, she went out and she was found. So that was the 21st. On the 22nd, she was found shot three times with a 22 caliber bullet. She was found nude halfway down a riverbank by the Spokane River near the 4100 block of Up River Drive. The only thing that she had on is that her feet were bound with like a green blanket. So there wasn't a lot because they were like, oh, my gosh, what happened? They weren't really sure. And, you know, they didn't know if it was just a one time thing where it was like an incident, like where someone got angry with her or if this was the makings of like something they should be paying attention to. Well, on March 25th of 1990, Nikki Lowe went to work. She was age 34 and she was also a prostitute. And then she was found on the 25th. Her body was draped over a guard, like a guardrail. And they don't actually say, like some sources said she was naked and others just said like she was missing her shoes and her sweater. But kind of the common theme is that all of the victims in this case were kind of naked. Her shoes, sweater, and wallet were found in a dumpster down the street. And she was found and they were found on the 3200 block of South Riverton. The cops were like, okay, what's going on? This is a very short amount of time. It's a little over a month. I went like they're starting to connect them. But there wasn't a lot to go on because this is 1990. And basically, forensic evidence, especially DNA evidence, you had to have a lot of it. Let's put it that way. It wasn't just like some skin cells or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then on May 15th of 1990, Kathleen DeBose went to work. 
theme here. She was also a sex worker. She was 38 years old and she was found on the 15th, I should say. And she was also naked and she was found along the Spokane River near Trent and Pine Road. And this scene was a little different because Kathleen fought back hard. There was like multiple places where they found her blood or they found like where it looked like she'd gotten into an altercation. She had severe defensive wounds on her. I should mention, I forgot to say that Nikki, who they had found, had only been shot once and Kathleen was shot three times. But one of the things that Kathleen did is when she was putting up a fight, she scratched the living shit out of the murderer. And so like every single one of her nails basically had DNA. The investigation, because they they had no clue where this was coming from, they didn't even have a profile, obviously someone who didn't like women because they were abusing, you know, sex workers. But the two investigators were Mark Burbridge, he was with Spokane PD, and then Jim Desbick, and he was with the local sheriff's department. The police linked certain things together, like the type of victim. Obviously, when you're dealing with sex workers, it's a higher risk victim because their lifestyle leads them to be more at risk to have stuff like this done to them. Because obviously, they, they were trusting people and just getting in their cars with them. All the victims knew each other and lived close to one another. and. I got really mad at this part because I was like watching this like one video. It was like later. I think it was like in 2013 or 12. I can't remember exactly. But he was like, and they were all, they all had to be prostitutes because they were like druggies. And I'm like, were they? Because I didn't read that anywhere else. And I feel like that's just something that people say to make them feel better. All the victims were either naked or their breast and genitalia were exposed. And then, like I mentioned with Yolanda, she was wrapped in like a green blanket while on all of the victims, there was like a green fiber and it was like the same fiber. They couldn't identify where it came from, but they thought it was weird that like it was on everyone. And then obviously the Yolanda was in a green blanket. And then all of the bullets were 22, but they were not all fired from the same gun. That was helpful, but then not helpful for the police because they were like, okay, it's the same caliber, but it's not the same gun. Just like an important thing to note, Robert Yates was in the area. He's a serial killer from that area. And he was killing at that time. But none of these crimes could be linked to him in case someone was like, but what about this dude? Just wanted that to be noted. The investigation would basically stall because like they didn't have DNA. I mean, they had DNA, but there was nothing they could really do with it at the time. And so it stalled out until about 2005 with advances in forensic technology and they basically took the fingernail clippings that they take from Kathleen and they basically extracted the DNA from the murderer and it took about four years I was like wow this took a long time but this again was 2005 so like was a lot older it took about four years for the crime lab to develop a full male profile and then they started running it against CODIS to see if there was anyone in there and that happened in about 2009 Well, nothing happened until 2012 when they finally got a hit in CODIS and it was one Douglas Perry. The only problem was there was no longer a Douglas Perry. Mm. Okay, I'm going to tell you the story. This individual is transgender. So I am going to start when I tell the story. I'm going to do it fluidly. When I talk about Douglas, I will use like he, him pronouns. And then once Douglas transitions to Donna, I'll use like she, her pronouns. Just so that everyone is like wondering. (laughs) 
I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I'm just telling a storyline. So Douglas was born in 1952, and he grew up in a very violent home. His father actually molested him and was physically and emotionally abusive to him. Just kind of like a little weird fun fact is they actually grew up like in an orchard farm in like rural Washington. So he didn't have a lot of socialization outside of his family unit. But in 1968, Douglas's father died of a burst blood vessel. That would leave his mother to be his, like, primary caregiver. However, shortly after that, she was hospitalized for schizophrenia. So let's just say he did not have the best support structure in his life at the time. The other thing about living in a rural area is that a lot of times people turn to guns as more of like a hobby versus just like a, oh, self-defense or something like that. So he became obsessed with guns. Like he loved them. And then he moved to Spokane. And when I say he became part of the sex worker community, like he kind of became part of the sex worker community. He dated a sex worker. He himself at times would put himself out there as like a male prostitute. And it was noted that while he was in Spokane, the only relationships and attachments that he had was in that community. So it wasn't like he had any relationships outside of it. Mm -hmm. And he would actually go as far as to help them. Like he would feed them or if they needed a place to stay, they could stay at his house, that kind of thing. He was known to be very charitable in that aspect. However... There's a whole other side to Douglas, and it is that he hated women, especially sex workers. Interesting. Right. So it's kind of weird that he would be in a relationship with one and then kind of surround himself within that community. He also had a criminal record. In August of 1974, he was arrested for second-degree assault. In March of 79, it was for firearm slash dangerous weapon violation. In 1986, he had another second-degree assault. May of 1987, it was a reckless endangerment. I don't really understand this one. It's In April of 88, it was a simple assault. I don't know what's simple about assault. And then in August of 1989, he was actually picked up for trying to solicit a prostitute. And then basically, we don't know that much about what Douglas was doing during that time other than the relationships he was having. But in 1994, Douglas started to identify as a woman, saying that he believed that he was a woman in a man's body, but still identifying as Douglas this whole time. So he ended up going to prison from January 12th, 1995 to 1997. And then in July of 1998, he was stopped by the police because he was like having stalking tendencies. Like he kept circling an area and they were like, what? So he became on their radar. But in December of 1998, he actually picked up a girl as a date. Like he picked up a sex worker or an escort as a date and brought her back to his house where she saw a lot of knives, guns, and even a crossbow in his house. So when he dropped her off later that evening, she flagged down the first policeman she could find and was like, you guys have to check out this guy. He's really freaking weird. He has all these guns. In their house, like I mentioned, they found knives and crossbows, but they also found five pipe bombs, 49 guns, 22 of which were handguns and 27 were rifles and over 20,000 rounds of ammunition. Ooh. Yeah, he liked weapons. Just a lot. Yeah. So basically, he was being arrested for that and he was going to do some some time. Yeah. At that point, when the police entered the home, they found clinical proof 
because he had been seeing like a psychiatrist or a therapist and they had clinical proof that Douglas was an individual capable of great violence and had extreme hatred of women. And they think the reason he was going to see this professional was because he was trying to figure out like who he was. And in the report, it actually outlined the steps that he needed to take to get a sex change. And it also characterized him as having paranoid personality disorder. And he was sentenced to do some prison time. So from late 1998 to 2000. But while he was in there, Douglas did some chit-chatting. And he told his cellmate how much he hated women and that he especially loathed sex workers. He even was, quote, calling them worthless pawn scum. That was his, like, famous saying. And he basically didn't confess to the murders, but he definitely hinted around them. Mm. And this is the weird part. Douglas confessed the reason he hated women was because they could have children and he couldn't. And that the reason he hated prostitutes is that they had the ability to, but most of the time, you know, like their sex did not end in procreation. To say the least, he was very confused. Well, in 2000, Douglas gets out of prison. He saves up money and goes to Bangkok, Thailand, where he gets a gender reassignment surgery. And Douglas now becomes Donna. So Donna's just living her life, doing her thing. And well, she ends up getting caught because she broke federal regulations for owning firearms. Because that's a theme throughout her life. And this is important, I believe, to note that throughout Donna's whole entire life, even when she was Douglas, she loved guns. And I think it's important to put a pin in that because we're going to talk about what she says later in regards to, but it's loving guns is a character trait of both individuals. Mm -hmm. So basically the reason that, like I said, the reason that Donna was caught is because her DNA was entered into CODIS after she was arrested on the federal charges of felony um, possession of firearm. When Donna was apprehended, the investigator was like, Donna, you're being charged with murder. And she was like, what murder? And told the police without 100% telling the police that the violence had stopped because of the sex change. At the time of her arrest, she was 62 years old. And she claimed that she didn't kill the victims and was really surprised when she was accused of killing those three women. She stated she didn't know what could have happened. She didn't know what her pre-transitional identity, Douglas, did. And basically, she was saying that she wasn't going to take any responsibility for what Douglas had done. Now, this is where in my thing where I'm like, okay, hold on. Most individuals who have a sex change remember their life prior to their sex change. They know their choices. They know their actions and whatnot. So for her to be like, I don't know what Douglas did is, I mean, unless she has some sort of dementia, I wouldn't know. Also, that's why I brought up the whole like pay attention to the fact that she loved guns throughout her whole life that transitioned from Douglas to Donna. So after 22 years, a suspect is finally surfaced. It took eight years after the DNA was extracted and three years after the profile was created. And then Donna was transported. So this is in 2012, was transported from Texas where she was living to Spokane, Washington. There was actually an issue um, with Donna and she let it, I should say, it's not so much an issue, but basically Donna took advantage of a system because they had everything under Douglas. And she just decided not to come to court because when they called for Douglas Perry to come forward, like most individuals would be like, well, my name used to be Douglas, but it's Donna. She just decided, 
I'm not going to say, I'm not going to do anything about it. And just like, they asked for Douglas. I'm Donna. Obviously they meant you. So she didn't come to court, even though the next day she came to court and the judge was not happy. And it didn't last too long because like she first went to court on June 9th and she was ended up sentenced July 24th. So it wasn't that long. The trial began and, ooh, this prosecutor, like, let me tell you. So Deputy Prosecutor Sharon Heedland, basically, this is an exact quote, she gilded herself like a farm animal because they were trying to say, the prosecution was saying that Douglas underwent gender reassignment surgery to become Donna so that Douglas wouldn't be liable or accountable for the murders or be a suspect because they would be looking for a male and as she was living her life as a female would not have automatically like, you know. Also throughout this whole thing, Donna refused to take the stand because she believed that Douglas no longer existed and that Donna could not testify on his behalf. Donna's attorneys also didn't call any witnesses throughout the entire thing. If it was me, I would have been calling experts. I would have been like, these are cases where we've seen where prior to gender reassignment surgeries, people had like a violent behavior. And then once they transitioned, they changed their pattern of lifestyle. And then, you know, there were two different people. But no, none of that shit. And the theory was that the violence became permanently under control when once she became Donna. In fact, she said when asked, Douglas didn't stop it, it being the violence. Donna stopped it. Okay. Because like the defense isn't really putting up anything and the prosecution is like, okay, there's DNA evidence that links this individual to these crimes. So on July 24th, 2017, so this is only three years ago, at the age of 65, Donna was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Now, the discussion that a lot of these shows and like videos I watched was talking about, or I should say around gender reassignment in the fact that they kind of needed to make this case say like, it doesn't matter regardless of your gender, murder is murder. Because there was a fear in like the criminology community that if they were to excuse these murders because of the fact that Donna wouldn't do that because that was a Douglas problem. What would stop other serial killers from just going and getting a gender reassignment surgery and saying like, oh, I'm done. Like, I mean, yes, the violence did stop. I think that had a lot to do with the fact that getting the gender reassignment surgery did like fix Donna's outlook of herself. But she killed three people. And has to be held accountable for that. So I thought this case was really interesting in the fact that I had never come across something like this before. Like I'd come across like transgender people killing, but not the case where someone transitioned and then claimed that the transition stopped the violence. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that either. It's definitely interesting. So that's all I have for this week. Make sure that you, if you don't know already, make sure that you head over to our socials and stuff. Our website, it's everywhere, is our live event that's coming up on September 18th. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know about it, go ahead and like head on back to the listeners episode that came out on Monday because it gives you full detail of what's going on. And of course, we'll talk about it again on Monday, but we'll leave you with that today. Bye, guys. Bye.
Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out, and we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. 